Welcome back to Friends and Neighbors. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and this week, cellist Patrick Riley. Before we start, a reminder that my brother and I are knee-deep in the follow-up film to our 2012 PBS documentary, Mr. Rogers and Me. It's called, wait for it, Friends and Neighbors, and we need your help. We're crowdsourcing post-production funds over at Indiegogo through the end of January, and we'll really, really appreciate your support. Please visit fnndoc.com to find out how you can help us finish this important, timely film and get your seat at the premiere. So, what are the odds of finding a world-class cellist, top-notch collaborator, and A-plus friend in the middle of Iowa? Well, as it ends up, really, really good. Cellist Patrick Riley, who's performed string arrangements on albums by Shawn Mendes, Imagine Dragons, Cheat Codes, and The Envy Corps, played alongside The Eagles and Father John Misty, and scored big-time Hollywood films, has graced every one of my albums since 2010's Forever Young. Patrick can deliver a plaintive viola solo or vast string orchestra, all from the comfort of his sun-drenched downtown Des Moines home and studio. There he is on Constellations, giving the Tyler, Texas guitar hook some swing, or on Breaking Down, providing swelling, melancholic drama. And there he was on my phone as I sat lonesome in a Chicago hotel room this spring when he texted me this David White poem. If heartbreak is inevitable and escapable, it might be asking us to look for it and make friends with it, to see it as our constant and instructive companion, and even perhaps in the depth of its impact as well as in its hindsight, to see it as its own reward. That, as you'll hear in this week's Friends and Neighbors interview, nay, discussion, is Patrick's hallmark. He's thoughtful, sensitive, and impeccably well-timed. For more than a decade, Patrick's helped me capture the heartbreak in my own songs and find my way to its inevitable, unlikely reward. My parents were both musicians. My dad had played guitar for quite a while, but by the time I came on the scene, (laughs) he was starting to play classical guitar or Mm -hmm. nylon string guitar and getting into that. He had grown up playing in bands and playing, you know, kind of learning the ventures. And right when I think rock guitar was starting to change into, I guess, rock guitar of the 60s, but he was playing more classical stuff. My mom was a pianist. And so that's what I remember... My sisters and I have two sisters. We all started out on piano and our uh, next door neighbor was our piano teacher. Uh, so I, I remember just, yeah, trudging across the, the driveway and taking, taking piano lessons. Was that a joyful experience or was it a drag or a little bit of both? It was joyful. I mean, I think every or most kids, probably some 99% really, once the novelty wears off and you don't want to practice anymore, there's some amount of yeah, resistance there. But it was, um, I mean, my parents had a fairly soft touch. We were expected to practice, but it wasn't like unduly oppressive if not. And I remember lessons, yeah, being um, a joyful thing. My first um, piano book was like dinosaur ditties. (laughs) So, you know, something I was interested in and it kind of tied into music at an early age. 
the first thing I remember playing on piano, which didn't last long, was the Volga Boatman. Gong, 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 gong. I mean, it was like, it was kind of how my household felt at the time, come to think of it. (laughs) (laughs) Very kind of Norse epic. Um, (laughs) How long did you stick with piano? My mother tells the story that as soon as she figured out I was playing by ear, she was like, okay, you're out, which seems counterintuitive to me in retrospect. I would have been like, oh, he has an intuitive capability. And Uh probably if we marry that to some skills, it could be pretty potent. I'd be like, can you play that again? And then I'd just play it back to him. It's interesting too, that that often is looked down upon, or it's sort of set aside in the formal music education. But um, if you were to think about, say, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but like the Suzuki method in string playing, that's exactly what it is. It's um, trying to get you to play um, sort of by ear, But I know what you mean. Sometimes in especially formal music education, you know, K through whatever, it's sort of thought of as not the way to go, which I think is unfortunate. I'm so interested in the early years, the formative years. Like what was the environment? Where were you? How did you spend your time? So I'm growing up at this point in Iowa in a, you know, it's definitely one of the major metropolitan areas of Iowa, but you know, that's kind of qualified. It's certainly not anything coastal. It's not New York. It's not California. So yeah, it was fairly quiet. We had a acre of land and yeah, it didn't feel overly hectic. I had supportive parents and I had a pretty quiet childhood growing up. I was lucky in that the school system I was in had very good string programs and music programs generally. And there was also a really robust youth orchestra program, youth symphony program. Mm -hmm. So that was definitely part of training and my ability to, you know, develop as a musician. Did you have favorite artists, favorite songs? Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, I remember my parents, you know, spinning like Streisand and my dad being guitarist would listen to Cream, the Eagles, that kind of thing. Um, You know, rock was really just kind of getting going and like early eighties glam, that's sort of when I started to notice the guitar. By the time I was 12, my dad had a, you know, some electric guitars just around the house and I started noodling around on them. Any kind of journey into recording music was just being in bands playing guitar and you've got a four track and you have to figure out a way to get all those instruments and the vocal onto the four track. You probably remember this. Yeah. I didn't know you played in bands in high school with guitar. Like, tell me more. Like, give me the worst. I love love high school band names so much, dude. Like, what were the bands? Give me some context. (laughs) Oh, it's it's probably not suitable for for the audience. Um, But, you know, just terrible band names that you're you're embarrassed by now. Um, what do you mean? Like, was it shit sandwich? I mean, what, you know, like what could oh, be? <laughs> well, you know, your teenage voice. I mean, I, I didn't think of myself as like some kind of really, you know, intemperate teenager, but like blues balls, you know, just things, <laughs> things that you're trying to, as you're playing in the school variety show, they're like, that's never going to fly. <laughs> Love it. Thank you for the best <laughs> laugh of my day. <laughs> I've asked this question before and no one had an answer like that one. That's great. I remember I tried to get a um, column at the Saratogian when I was out of college called The Electric Banana. And she was like, no way. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you're, and you're denying the double entendre. Like, I don't know what you're 
what's your objection? I got to be honest. I'm into like, fruit. I was with like, potassium. Right. yeah, right. I will. I was making the spinal tap reference and, you know, cause he says at the beginning, uh, like I saw them in a smoky bar in Greenwich village called the electric banana. Don't look for it. It's not there anymore. You know what I mean? And so I don't even think I realized there was a double entendre at 22. You know what I mean? Which is <laughs> even funnier, but oh my God, blues balls. That is totally good for this audience. Are you kidding me? That's gold. I think it's important that we laugh and it doesn't have to be all trauma recovery and hard work, right? You know yeah, what I mean? Let's have some fun. I grew up playing classical music. I played piano first and then added cello. And that's sort of what I was doing. But discovering the electric guitar was important for me in this way. It really allowed me to find something that I could pour like all the energy that, you know, your teachers want you to go home and practice X, you know, minutes or hours a day until I found like the electric guitar. And then it's like your parents can't get you out of your room because you get into this state and, you know, colloquially, I guess now these days we're calling it the flow state or something like that, where you just find that you get into it and hours pass and you, yeah. And it's just terrific. And so now post-college, I got a little bit more away from the guitar and back to cello, et cetera. But I think without that period of early teens through, you know, early 20s, I don't know that I would have the love for music that I have today mm-hmm. um, unless I'd had that. And just that real attraction to trying to learn songs and trying to figure out guitar lines, I, I think it was really important for my development. Did you do, go to a conservatory, that sort of thing? Or was it you were always achieving in that space and there were logical steps? It's fair to say there wasn't a real plan beyond, I think my parents recognized that my sisters and I had some natural facility with these instruments. And, you know, they, they gave us the tools to develop in, you know, ways that allowed us to go on if we so decided to do it, to pursue that later in life. I went to college on a music scholarship, but I didn't really think that's what I'm going to do. You know, thankfully it just sort of happened that way. I'll, I'll say this too. It's kind of a mystery to me sometimes that children stick with classical music. It's just difficult. This is often like 300 year old music Mm -hmm. that you're putting in front of a kid and saying, don't you love this music? It's a, I mean, to me, it's a little bit like, a sommelier, you know, giving like a really fine cab salve to a, an eight-year-old, you know, um, <laughs> illegal as it may be, and saying like, are you getting the notes of pencil and oxblood? And yeah. they're like, no, I, it's, it tastes like vinegar to me. What are you talking about? And I've played in, you know, the symphony here. We'll do these outreach programs for, for school kids. They'll bus in all these kids and it's terrific. And we play some different things that are attention grabbing for kids. But like sometime, if you put a kid in a, in a symphony concert, I don't know, sometime after the second theme is developed in the woodwinds, like, are they going to be with it? I don't know. So I just, I'm, I'm happy when any child <laughs> makes it through a formal program and isn't just bored. <laughs> it's a tough code to crack unless you can just surrender and I think for me, this is always what's worked is you just surrender to the musicality and you feel the the air moving, which I always love about live, any live music, you know? Right. The right. actual space is changed in a way that is not replicated in headphones usually. What were the steps from school into performing as a career? 
I played cello through college, um, played in the symphony. I started teaching a little bit at the end of college. And then coming out of that, actually, I moved across the country to be in a band and didn't really think about cello too much. Actually, my first bout of ever recording the cello was with that band. But it was just, oh yeah, I can do this other thing too. Is this in Chicago, LA, New York? No, it was actually in Lexington, Kentucky. I stayed there for a year and did that. And then I moved back to Iowa to be closer to family. And that's kind of when my sort of version two of classical music started taking off. And I met some people who were really pivotal in getting me kind of into the classical scene here. And then from there, yeah, I just started performing with quartets and playing with local universities for, say, operas, that kind of thing, and eventually got into recording string arrangements for kind of pop and singer-songwriters, that sort of thing. Names that people recognize, Imagine Dragons, Envy, Corey, Sean Mendes. The list is like a whole bunch of people like me, you know, singer-songwriters, and it's all really beautiful stuff. How did it start? I mean, the first time I heard you was The Long Goodbye with the Nottas. You were, I think, my second or third go-round with any sort of recording. You know Bonnie Finken. She's a Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. kind of local talent here. Thank goodness she was in the studio with John Locker, whom you also know. And um, they decided they needed cello on a song. And they came up with my name through a series of, you know, people who know each other. And that's really how it got started. And then I think not too long after that, I did some work for you. And that we're just off and running. Once there was a way to get back home. Once there was a way to get back home. Sleep, little darling, do not cry. The first thing you and I did was the Beatles cover of Golden Slumbers and my favorite part of that recording is Casey's background vocals. And you do this one little, it's a drop in a certain spot and it's got such movement, dude. I often conduct it when I hear it. Only my wrists can move in the way that I hear it. It's so gentle. It like floats. It's so beautiful. I, and it was your second pass. That's crazy. Let's talk about this for a second. And and it's this, that when you listen to VSTs or virtual instruments now, AI, it's getting better basically by the minute. And there are times now where I'll hear, someone will send something to me and say, hey, we've, we've thrown in some kind of VST strings just as placeholders. They're pretty great. Sometimes I'll worry that like they're going to put me out of a job. But I really think there is something to the human feel and expression of someone playing a string instrument that ideally will never be fully captured (laughs) by a computer. And I think that's what you're responding to. Like a person played that. I'm not trying to, you know, toot my own horn here. I'm just saying like, I think what we're responding to there and what I'm trying to do is communicate that there's a person behind there. And I think that's why I come to you over and over. I've had cellos on almost every record I've ever made because for some reason, the combination of acoustic guitar and cello is so moving to me. Just nothing can replicate it. And I think it's in part because it so replicates, for me, the human experience, the way the body moves through the world. 
this swaying. It's intangible, but it, but you do it. <laughs> Thank God. It's really remarkable. That set of instruments, acoustic guitar, voice, cello, yeah. it can be a really just delicious combination. How does a collaboration typically proceed? How does an artist or a producer typically come to you? It varies a little bit, but I think there are kind of two main ways it comes to me. One is maybe you're a singer-songwriter, maybe it's a short film or a band, and they just know that they want strings involved in some way, and they'll just pitch it over to me, and we'll start working that way. I'll come up with some drafts, and we'll go back and forth, as with almost any kind of like freelance work. Or someone has specific parts that they want. Like, you're really good about this. I think our collaboration is often, you'll throw it over to me, we'll work on it, and then you'll say, you know, it sounds you know, 90% there, but can we do this little melody here? And that's truly rewarding when the band or the artist or the director has some input and they know what they want. And so it's truly a collaboration. Jesus, I can remember whistling something and being like, I don't even know if this is right, but it's what I hear. And I know he'll give it a shot. And if it's terrible, we'll not use it, you know, but that you've always been gracious about taking a swing at any cockamamie idea. I feel like if I have a, an idea that I think is strong, I'll definitely try to trumpet its, um, you know, virtues or, or right. strengths. But I think at the end of the day, you have to understand that it's, you know, it's this person's vision and their art and that's what's important. So being flexible, super important. I guess I just always worry that again, back to things like theory or having formal training of, of any sort, I just have this intuition that's like, well, this is what I hear. It seems to work out whatever we do. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think you, you have super great instincts about that and in terms of melody and supporting melody. So yeah, keep whistling, keep <laughs> sending me whistling voice, <laughs> voicemails. You close your eyes You are the sky tonight. You shake the darkness with all your might. Storm King, which you jokingly say was 38,000 eighth notes. <laughs> so talk about that song a little bit. I'm actually not great at hearing a song and thinking, oh, I know what I'm going to do. In fact, what usually happens is I'll hear the song and even after years of doing this, I'll think, I got it. I, I know what's going to happen here. And then I'll sit down with it and start tracking and think, well, that's not going to work. <laughs> But with that one, actually, I thought, I think I know uh, what we're going to do here. And I didn't stray too far from the initial first takes at it. And that is such a great tune. And um, it's great when you have an idea and the idea actually works out. Um, it almost never happens for me. So that's I have some really fond memories about that song. I got the sense when I heard it that it had to be laborious. I guess I say that appreciatively and with a lot of humility and respect for what you do. It was like, damn. Well, that's really sweet of you. And 
you know, you having run marathons, I feel like there's, there's a kind of selective memory that happens where you look back on it fondly and you're like, well, that wasn't so bad. But in the moment you're just like, oh my gosh, we're still going. One thing about, about Storm King is that, you know, we finished that and I sent you all the tracks and then you sent me a note and asked if I could do something right at the end. And that I think is actually one of the great parts of that tune. And I'm so glad that you came back and said, you know, why don't we try something here at the end? Because I didn't have anything there. That's all your idea. When I sent that to you, there was nothing there. And then you said, I think we need something right at the end. And I came back and did a little thing. Um, but I think that little thing is, um, is a really integral and beautiful part of that song. Scribbled on the sky, constellations overhead. Everybody dies, we're just counting down the days. Don't regret you stealing something away from me. I won't forget you. I remember I don't ask about I Remember Everything, which is often the melancholy or the like contemplative or reflective, right? Mm -hmm. And that's definitely what I Remember Everything is. There's something about the string quartet that I think is so malleable, especially for in a song like this, where the way that I heard it, Benjamin, is, you know, certainly reflective. What were you going through lyrically in that song? Or how do you understand it now? I had that line, dum, 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 which is like an F down to chromatic C and a chromatic G. And it kind of had a sort of circuitous round sort of thing. I don't remember the order of what came when on that song anymore, even though it was just last summer. But I do remember that when I sang, now the only way up is down, I knew that I had to go in somewhere. I knew I had to go deep. I knew I had to go into what was going to be hard before I could come out of it. I knew it was not going to be easy, but I didn't know what it meant. I didn't even do that. I don't even think anyone had said anything about adverse childhood experiences or chronic stress. I don't think I'd said out loud that I was worried about my drinking, you know, anything. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was Mm -hmm. all in my head. And I think it wasn't the substance. It was the concern about what was still underneath that was not going away, no matter what I tried. But now how I think of it is, you may make all the psychological senses you want out of your frontal lobe. And I had, I mean, 15 years of therapy in New York City with like classic, you know, like Jungian guy, but it didn't solve it. It was useful intellectually, but it wasn't until... I kind of got hip to the idea of somatic psychology and the idea that the body keeps the score, you know, and, and learned about the vagal uh, nerve and the nervous system and fight or flight and all that sort of stuff that it was like, oh, there's something else going on here that's both psychological and neurological, biological. And that was freeing as shit, do you know? And then once I got hip to that, I was like, oh shit, this is all of us. I just immediately was like, you know, this is January 6th, this is road rage, this is Karen's at the mall, this is everybody. And that's Mm -hmm. what got me excited about trying to talk about it more. And that's what gave me the courage to talk about it more. And that's kind of what the record's about. And that's certainly what the next movie is about. 
So thanks for asking, because I don't think I've said that answer, but that was, you're, you're, you, this is just like you to turn the table. <laughs> well, you know, even if like Jungian therapy didn't resonate with you, this kind of Rogerian, you have all the answers within you. Maybe that's, you know, that's the ticket. In May, I was in Chicago and you texted me some poetry out of the blue. What did you share and what made you do so? I shared with you these consolations from David White, and they are poems, but it's not a classical like rhyme scheme. It's more kind of prose, um, but just thoughts. David White has a way of capturing things where one, it's like every line you could ruminate on it and think about it for a mm. week. You know, when you've got a favorite novel and it seems like you're underlining every line until it no longer makes any sense, everything is underlined. That's sort of what listening to these constellations are like. But I think he is just so captures the human condition and he'll take these just, just a topic like nostalgia or heartbreak and he'll ruminate on it and in a poetic way. But it also seems, I mean, I think it was, I don't know, maybe Ezra Pound who said like poetry is news that stays news. Like it's always, mm. there's always going to be some kind of kernel that just resonates with you. And yeah, his consolations are just a treasure, I think. The timing on that was <laughs> bananas. So what made you think uh, Wagner could use a couple poems right now? You know what? I think what it was, was nothing that either of us could have really foretold. I think I, it was on my mind and I'd been thinking about it for a while. Having listened to the podcast, I was just thinking, I bet this guy would get something out of this. And I think it's, it's easy to get kind of cut off and siloed. And even, you know, you and I have this longstanding collaboration, but you've been living in New York City. I'm in the Midwest. Like it's easy to just have that be just music. You're such a like a, a cinnamon roll of a human. You know, every time I've, I've worked with you, it's just like constant positive support. Sometimes I often, you know, I think like, is he serious? Is, is this track really good? You know that I've sent him, <laughs> but but it's terrific. So anyway, all that to say, I don't think there was like a particular reason other than I read it. I knew kind of what you were doing on the podcast, and I thought. I don't know where this guy is in, in his life, but maybe, maybe it will resonate with him. And you're someone who is important to me. And so I sent it. Well, it did, as you know, and um, that's, I wanted to raise it in part just because I, I mean, it, it says a lot about you. And also I think kind of, I was just so moved, I guess is all I should say. <laughs> well, I'm um, glad. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy about it. I assume that the instrument, the cello, possesses a full range of emotion. But even as I reread what I wrote, I think, well, it probably possesses whatever emotion you invest in it. What range of emotions do you typically experience when you're playing? Or is it truly as wide as the spectrum of emotions there are in the human experience? Often you will hear the cello um, <laughs> used in the, in the movie when the, the main character is experiencing some extremely melancholic episode or something terrifically sad just happened. In comes the cello solo, like the melancholic cello. And, you know, there's a reason for that. But I think, you know, you mentioned Storm King. That's a great example of the strings just like chugging along. And it's yeah. terrific. Um, if you were to listen to a sampling of, say, the great string quartet work, like you'll hear 
all kinds of different emotions. You know, Shostakovich, you would hear just some incredibly, some of the most forceful, up-tempo, just raise your blood pressure music. Like, um, I'll commend to your listeners. I mean, if you ever want to really see something, go see a professional string quartet. Maybe they're on a they're visiting on a campus near you or whatever. Play any of one of the six Bartok string quartets, Bella Bartok. It is the most incredible music. There is nothing I'd rather listen to or see than a really good string quartet play any of the Bartok string quartets. It's just all kinds of textures and emotions. Everything is contained within those works. Mm -hmm. There is a wide variety of voices and characters that strings can bring to music. And I mean, to whatever degree that strings are used in music today, I'm just glad to see that, you know, songwriters like you continue to involve them in the music that you're making. Why is it? Is it lack of imagination? What, like, Or is there actually th something you think about the the timbre or the frequency range, you know, that, that is often the association of drama or melancholy or lonesomeness. Right. Or even kind of gravitas, like, oh, if we right, add strings, right, right, it'll, right. you know, instantly elevate the piece. Why does it happen? I, I mean, these things don't come up in a vacuum. I'm sure there, you know, there's a reason why any instrument is kind of slotted into the role that it has or instruments. I don't know that I have a great answer other than I hope that people continue to use it in new and interesting ways. I mean, I can't say that I love all of it. Like there's a kind of sector of, of cello playing where it's put in front of a pedal board. Right. I'm a former guitarist. I, and I, I don't <laughs> think there's a need to turn the cello into a guitar. Oh, yeah. Look, I've put a distortion pedal on a, on a cello and I have to live with that. You know, I have to, that's something I did and put out into the world. And I've got to come to terms with that. With that. that yes, I put a, a big muff on a cello. Oh, gosh. And I, you know, I'm still, I'm not in prison. I've got a quick um, thing for you, actually. I heard you say on a, on a recent episode, a stencil on a sidewalk in Yeah, being your patient won't get you the secret won't song. Won't get you the secret song. yeah. I used to have a running route um, through this kind of Tony zip code. And one day I was running through it and there on the sidewalk, someone had spray painted in black spray paint, death awaits. <laughs> <laughs> and Benjamin, I ran, I ran past and over those words like a bunch of times. And I always, it always really made me think. And it was kind of an interesting and kind of impish juxtaposition of graffiti in a fairly upscale neighborhood. And it always kind of made me laugh, but I really, it really got to me <laughs> in certain ways, just like kind of a memento mori, but spray painted black on a sidewalk. Oh, dude, that's amazing. It's, it's, you know, that is in a lot of ways what makes this record different from most of mine. It, there's mortality all over it. The title of the record is Constellations and it comes from a, I remember everything, right? Um, everybody dies. We're just counting down the days. I went to Muscle Shoals a month before I turned 50 and I was in a new place and I was reconciling what just happened across the board. Like I'm in a new town, COVID, blah, blah. So like in a lot of ways, death awaits is kind of just a, you know, much more succinct way of saying what I was saying. And I remember everything in the secret song, like that's the point, you know, that's the thing you're after. And I don't know if I got the secret song, but I think I, I think I did. Laheim. <laughs> <laughs> 
What would you say to your 10 year old self if you could give him some guidance today? There's a notion, or at least there was when I was 10, that you're on this linear path. Maybe you're going to go to college and then you're going to get a job and work until you die. And you're probably going to have a family and kids. And that's kind of what we've got for you on the outlook here. But I think um, more and more now, I mean, you're a testament to this, that it is possible to get interested in things and do them for a while and have other interests, follow those, see where it takes you. And not to think like, well, I better know what I'm doing in seven years. And therefore, in the next six months, I've got to right. do this. I do think that um, there are other ways of getting through life than just saying, I've got to do this and do that. And then I get a job and, oh, you know, you look at your watch one day and you're 65 and it's time to hang it up. And death awaits. <laughs> <laughs> Friends and Neighbors is an Essential Industries production in association with Wagner Brothers. Please help us bring Friends and Neighbors, the documentary, to the big screen by visiting fnndoc.com. Without your support, we simply can't finish the film or carry on this deep and simple podcast. So thank you. It's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends. <laughs>